The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome along. It is 5 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That's 6 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past six in beautiful Newfoundland and Labrador. And beyond the Americas, 10 p.m. in London, 11 p.m. Paris, midnight in Kiev, where they're still waiting for Biden to clarify his remarks on what size of incursion he is willing to permit Putin. 1 a.m. in Moscow, where Putin is still laughing his socks off. Half past one in Tehran, for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 3.45 a.m. in Kathmandu, for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 6 a.m. in Singapore, Honkers and Perth. I'm awfully sorry about that. 9 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. And an even more civilized hour for the Kippers and Kedgeri in Auckland and the Pacific. But wherever you are, we welcome you to a rare weekend edition of our Clubland Q&A. Let us get to it with a first question. That comes from Dale Owens, a Welshman living near Milan, (laughs) which is probably more fun than a Milanese living in Wales would have. Uh, But uh, Dale Owens writes, Dear Mark, the Russian nationalist leader Vladimir Zirinovsky recently commented that the demographic transformation of the United States and the ensuing ethnic conflict and chaos would lead white Americans to flee to Canada, Australia, and even Siberia. He added that the game is up for the U.S. as, quote, the new majority will not be able to maintain the same high level of technological development, economy, life, democracy, and so on. What's your take on this? Well, my take on this is as it's been continuously for uh, most of this century. I'm just looking at a news story here. The Transport Security Administration, for non-Americans, they're those boring twits in all the American airports who make you take your shoes off so you can shuffle shoeless uh, through the detector. And then if you need to have a secondary inspection, they put on those gloves and start poking around inside your knickers. Um, The TSA has just confirmed that it allows uh, illegal immigrants to use arrest warrants as ID in airports. (laughs) Uh, Because because the illegal immigrants haven't got all that picture ID you're meant to have for an airport. You You know the stupidity of American airports when you go there and you 
give your driver's license or your, I believe you have to have the enhanced driver's license. And the guy still gets out his jeweler's loop and uh, pours over it, inspects it. I don't know what he's expecting to find. You know, the guys who pulled off 9-11 did so not with fake driver's licenses. Why, why would you need to bother with a fake driver's license when it's so bloody easy to get a real one? In half the states of the union, you will be, uh, they will happily give you a real driver's license. So the idea that he's, oh, he's like a, a jeweler looking to see whether this is just some forged fake uh, diamond um, is all complete nonsense, complete security theater. And the very same organization that now inspects your actual driver's license uh, has confirmed that it permits illegal... They don't need the real driver's license. They don't need to actually bother having a fake driver's license for the guy with the jeweler's loop to examine in great detail. They're permitted to... Board, they're permitted to enter airports, enter the secure area, and board the plane with an arrest warrant. And uh, Unless, of course... They're, they're an illegal immigrant who is in the unfortunate position of not having an arrest warrant. And so he has to fake an arrest warrant. He has to come produce a fake arrest warrant for the guy with the jeweler's loop to examine in order to board a plane. You know, as, a, as I've always said, sometimes a society becomes too stupid to survive. And there appear to be no provocations that the citizenry will not swallow in the United States. This, of course, I need hardly tell you, this, of course, is at a time of global pandemic where you need authentic uh, biometric ID in order to do perfectly routine things like your job uh, or indeed uh, to enter a restaurant. But no doubt if an illegal immigrant wants to enter a restaurant... Uh, then he or she will be uh, allowed to do so upon the good word of their arrest warrant. Now, to come back to Dale Owen's question, which was about what Vladimir Zhirinovsky says is likely to happen to the United States. Yes, I said the other day, I think on this show, that I thought, you know, if these trends continue, the end of the United States will be as bloody and as violent as anything we've seen. I, I'm struck by, as I said, these stories don't make, that don't make the news where people are killed. In You know, the police used to have this tedious expression, you know, a robbery gone wrong, as if, you know, the police are in favor of robberies gone right. But what they meant by that was that the a person handed over all their wallet and their credit cards and their cash and all the rest of it and somehow still wound up getting shot. Well, in case you haven't noticed, that's now become a routine situation where people, oh, yes, oh, OK, it's a robbery. Is it OK? Well, uh, here's my MasterCard and uh, I've got $80 in uh, $20 bills and uh, oh, I think I've got some change, too. And they still get shot. And why is that? Why is that? Because large, through a combination of factors, uh, large numbers of people have dehumanized tens of millions of their fellow Americans to the point where they really don't care 
if they kill them. Okay, he's given me the 80 bucks in in 20s. Uh, I'm still going to kill him because what's going to happen? If you in no functioning society in 2022 needs to import large numbers of unskilled immigrants. There is, and, and if you, oh, well, who's going to pick the crops? The crops are all developing. The farmers are all developing these machines, right? Uh, oh, who's going to be the waitstaff? Well, actually, uh, they've all got these tablets on the restaurant tables now, so you don't need somebody to come and take your order. You know, you don't need to, imp and even if you did, you wouldn't need to import tens of millions of them because all that does is just depress American workers' wages. So America exported all the good jobs to China and then uh, brought, in, uh, brought in tens of millions of illegal aliens to keep the wages for the remaining crapo jobs, the... the uh, cheapo service jobs, which is now what 40% of Americans do or did before the COVID, uh, and, uh, and uh, paid no attention. You know, homo economicus, the Wall Street Journal fellows and the Chamber of Commerce write, don't think there are any cultural consequences. They think they're importing waiters and agricultural workers. Whereas the waiters and agricultural workers, oddly enough, don't think of themselves as waiters and agricultural workers. They think of themselves as, uh, as um, Mexicans or Muslims or whatever their principal cultural identity is. And uh, in many cases, the essential part of that cultural identity is that they're members of MS-13 or similar. So now the Mexican border goes all the way up to within about five miles of the Canadian border. And simply, uh, and indeed, it's not even a Latin American border anymore because the word has got out. Oddly, oddly enough, everybody's got mobile telephones and your cousin's cousin with the mobile telephone uh, tells you that Joe Biden get, doesn't quite get the story in all its details, but tells you that Joe Biden is giving $450,000 uh, to any illegal immigrant uh, whose uh, family got separated by uh, the hateful Donald Trump. So there's people coming to that border from all over. the. This is going to be one of the most violent and bloody ends anyone has ever seen. And you will be given the choice of remaining in your country to be picked off or doing as Vladimir Zhirinovsky suggests and fleeing. And at that point, the question becomes whether there's anywhere to flee because just all this, by the way, derives, and this is again another reason why I say don't wave that constitution at me, because constitutionalism becomes in the end, ultimately, uh, becomes a kind of delusion, becomes a kind of delusion. You know, we all know other countries until fairly recently were conventional ethnostates. Indeed, an American president, uh, Woodrow Wilson, was in large part the one who imposed that model on the non-uni-ethnic uh, parts of Europe after the First World War. He was the one who uh, came up with the idea that nation-states should contain people of one ethnicity. 
which wasn't true of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the original uh, multi-culti polity. And you'll remember there was some guy who said, oh, I'm sick of trivia from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> well, I only mention it because if you knew the first bloody thing about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you wouldn't be going around bleating diversity is strength. But at any rate, uh, conventional ethnostates, Sweden... It just happens to be where the Swedes live. Denmark is where the Danes live. Uh, the Netherlands is where the Dutch live. So Scotland is where the Scots live. Now, obviously, after the revolution uh, in, uh, in, in America, after 1776, you couldn't have that. You couldn't simply say because uh, Americans were British subjects who had broken uh, with the crown. So you can't talk of it as they did of Canada and Australia. You know, Bob Menzies, uh, the longest serving Australian prime minister, used to say he was British to his bootstraps when they introduced Australian citizenship. Uh, they called it the uh, British Nationality and Australian Citizenship Act because Australia was the principal British nation in the Pacific. Now, obviously, you couldn't have an ethno-national claim from a revolutionary polity such as the United States. So instead, they came up with all this proposition nation, nation of immigrants stuff. Oh, anyone can uh, immigrate to America and become American. Uh, and uh, that, in large part, was not technically true, even as recently as 1990, where half the country was descended from people who'd been there since 1776. Um, it wasn't true as recently as 1990, but it is true now because we're testing the proposition of the proposition nation to absurdity. Anyone, millions of people, could, Afghan translators, oh, who doesn't like an Afghan translator? Uh, unfortunately, they don't speak English, so we're going to need some translators for the Afghan translator. Uh it's being tested now to ludicrous lengths. And as we see, large numbers of people, and they're, and they're being flown all over the country. Before they get to fly around with their arrest warrants, they're flown by Joe Biden in the dead of night all over the country. So even if you think, well, you know, I don't really give much thought to all these uh, Haitians coming across the border, Haitian refugees, because they're not going to make it up to... Uh, uh, to uh, my little my little town just on the outskirts of Buffalo, are they? are not going to make it to Lackawanna or Tonawanda or Three Mile Island. Well, even if they're not going to make it there, he's going to fly them there. And this is this is this is at the at its best just a hugely imprudent thing to do. Uh, and one that uh, and one that just ma makes a mockery. It makes a mockery of citizenship. Makes a mockery of all the emergency procedures. For twenty years, you've shuffled shoeless because you've been told at the airport that you're on orange alert. Oh, except for illegal immigrants who can just use their arrest warrants. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the jihadist with the arrest warrant <laughs> can get on the plane. Uh, while you're still having your enhanced photo ID. It's a joke, e examine. It's a joke, and you're the chumps of the planet for putting up with it. But it is Dale Owens and Vladimir Zhirinovsky 
have a point. It's all going to end bloodily and violently. And whether, I mean, there'll still be a Siberia to flee to, but whether there'll be a Canada or an Australia or a New Zealand to flee to, I cannot say. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting question. Frank Gallenstein or Gallenstein, uh, whichever it is, I salute you, sir. Frank says, Mark, I read there was a Rasmussen poll last week reporting that 59% of Democrat voters in the USA would support a government policy confining the unvaccinated to their homes except for emergencies. Nearly half, 48% of Democrat voters, also thought the government should be able to fine or imprison individuals who publicly question the efficacy of vaccines on social media. What will it take to get citizens in the USA to respect others' freedom? Well, if you were to put this question to uh, Mark Levin, he'd say, well, it'd take the US Constitution. Obviously, If you support confining millions of people to their homes because for one reason or another, they don't want to get a needle pumping something into their arms. And if you think that even questioning whether you should get the needle pumped into your arm on Facebook or Twitter should be enough to get you fined or imprisoned, you obviously have no understanding of the American Constitution. The American Constitution might might as well be as dead as the first COVID death in Wuhan for all the Im- influence it has over that 59% of Democrat voters. Um, and that's that ought to be that ought to be very sobering. You know, in the end, in the end, the history of the 20th century is uh, mocks the familiar quotation about uh, people who are willing to trade security for freedom uh, uh, in the end deserve neither and will get neither. Um, Because actually that's what has been happening consistently across the Western world. And people on the whole uh, have been very well disposed to it, including in these last two years when you would have thought that the concept had been tested far beyond breaking point. But the idea, what is uh, distressing about this, and I think in part it's, it's the legal, it's, the, it's to do with the way America has degenerated into a land of legalisms rather than a land of law. If you read these tortured court judgments uh, you get now, um, I, think it, I think it is to do with uh, with a complete lack of understanding of first principles. I mean, we're not even, we don't, we don't even need to, we shouldn't even need to get to the fact that the claims being made for the vaccines are far more modest than were being made three months ago, uh, uh, never mind, uh, you know, nine months before that. Uh, we're being told that people who, you know, you might you mightn't have had the vaccine, not because you're particularly anti-vax, but just because, as with the Massachusetts liberal uh, I interviewed on GB News uh, the other week, you're a healthy guy in your 30s and you don't see there's any reason to get it. And that actually is a scientifically backed decision. But they're not in, his fellow Democrats aren't interested in, in hearing that. They'd like that guy confined to his home 
And uh, if he should say anything about it, as he has at his website, they'd like him fined or imprisoned. So when you say, what will it take to get citizens to respect uh, others' freedom? I think we're at a very, I think we're at a very day. It's the, it's the bit that, it's the bit in the future dystopian uh, novels and films that people don't can't quite get. You know, well, why, wait, wait a minute. Why would these people put up being told what to do by this benign dictator fellow who's making them all think alike and dress alike and eat alike? And well, look at the last two years. Look at the last two years. And you, and, and you still can't figure out how these dystopian things happen? Gabriel, Gabriel Garcia Moreno says, Mark, the Royal College of General Practitioners. Uh, I had to just go and check this one, Gabriel, uh, because I thought you'd got the Royal College of Physicians uh, misnamed. But apparently there is a Royal College of uh, General Practitioners. It uh, dates uh, all the way back to the 1950s. How impressive is that? Anyway, Gabriel, I've, in fact, I've gone to look it up now, so I've lost the uh, bit of Gabriel's... Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, the Royal College of General Physicians, General Practitioners, is tonight... <laughs> I shouldn't have started this, should I? I'm <laughs> uh, the Royal College of General Practitioners is tonight imploring the UK government to overturn its decision to sack healthcare workers who declined to accept COVID vaccinations. As a decision which, alongside vaccine passports, makes less and less sense amidst clear evidence of continued transmission by the fully vaccinated, what should we make of once libertarian Boris's, Boris Johnson's willingness to objectively harm the NHS in order to uh, purportedly protect it. Yeah, it's not really an NHS thing. They've already done that, I think, in... Um, where is it? Well, like New York State, for example. I think they've already... But, it, but it's generally true, regardless of whether you've got a socialist uh, healthcare system or whether you've got so-called private healthcare systems, that if you go to... Uh, your local hospital these days, you'll notice that there are far fewer staff. And and that's true in Britain. Even before these regulations have kicked in, which I think they're due to do next month. But basically, between, between uh, doctors and nurses and janitors who've caught the Omicron and are asymptomatic, but are nevertheless told <laughs> to stay home, uh, for whatever it is, five days, 10 days, a couple of weeks, best to be on the safe side. And the other doctors, nurses and janitors who decline for whatever reason to be vaccinated, uh, these hospitals are just backing up with longer and longer wait lists uh, for anybody who's got cancer or uh, is uh, diabetes or whatever. So we're going to... <laughs> It's now it's now become completely self-defeating. As I as I wrote a few weeks ago, the disease and the cure have now completely parted company. They don't even briefly intersect anymore. They're two circles and they don't even meet for a tiny little bit of overlap. But 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 again, it's taking. Uh, that's why I was very pleased with uh, Lord Frost on 
the GB News show when he when he said that he called it a huge public policy failure. Because the fact is, you can sense people are turning on this, turning on this. And it's why uh, also on GB News, I called for a full reimbursement of all the fines and everything, because it's it's time to stop. It's now got nothing to do with the virus. And it's time to stop talking about it in those virological and public health terms and talk about it instead as a public policy failure that has done criminal damage to people and actually encouraging talk of lawsuits against governments that, as we see now, when you take away the you know, the of COVID, the with COVID, the total excess mortality, uh, killed, uh, appear to have killed, actually killed the government. When it, when all the final sums are done, the government uh, measures will have killed more people than the COVID ever did. Uh, and that's why it's important to uh, start uh, to, to shift the narrative to say, yeah, yeah, OK, we know it's a public policy failure. What do we do about it? Uh, is it time to demand massive compensation? Kate Smythe writes from Down Under. Hi, Mark. Great work on GB News. You recently interviewed a high-profile left liberal American and a high-profile conservative Englishman on the topic of COVID-19. Their views in terms of the response couldn't be more different. What do you think? A supranational corporate state NGO philanthropist elite, including the West CCP class, quote, trusting each other and coming together to increase wealth and centralize power at the expense of the great unwashed in formerly free and prosperous democratic nation states through the use of emergency powers, media propaganda and tech censorship, that's position A, or a heavy-handed and incompetent but well-intentioned overreaction by cautious government by experts hindered by groupthink uh, and unfortunate lapses in judgment when breaking their own save lives rules. In other words, are you more inclined to agree with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or Lord Frost? You have to pick one. Uh, P.S. In terms of a media COVID narrative, at least in the UK, have you seen a YouTube interview with Mark Sharman, former ITV and Sky News boss? It's a it's a great shame you uh, say I can only pick one, uh, whether it's uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or Lord Frost, because I think within their spheres, they're both right. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is right to this extent um, that uh, that the deep state is deeply mixed up with uh, with public health for whatever reasons. Uh, uh, And specifically in terms of the covid there are people who worked at uh, Eco Health. I think it's called Eco Health Alliance. At Peter Dashak's uh, shop, which who who have now concluded. I think it, the vice president or whatever he was of that thing claims that Peter Dashak told him they were taking money from the CIA. That apparently just being a conventional health uh, type 
setup wasn't really making enough money for them. They were having to lay people. They'd get a grant, then the grant would be exhausted. They'd have to lay people off. Then they'd apply for another grant. They'd get another grant. They'd rehire some people. Then they'd have to lay them off again. And apparently, it turned out much easier to take uh, CIA, what's effectively CIA money, uh, from I think it was USAID, which is uh, well known to be a CIA front and all the rest of it. So you have on the public health side this uh, terrible corruption, both by China and by the usual money-no-object tosspots uh, of the alphabet soup agencies in Washington. And I think there's no doubt that at the public health level, there is a degree of conspiracy in that the emails themselves reveal that the first thing that happened when COVID broke in the Western world was that the uh, instinct of Fauci, Daszak, the medical journals, the WHO, the whole racket was to lie to the world and to cover up the origins of the Wu flu. So in other words, that I think is a con that's not a conspiracy theory. I think that's largely proven to be a conspiracy. A conspiracy. And then you have this overlay, though, and this is where I don't like the either-or thing, which is the political class. And I think there are certainly, throughout the Western political class, people who are on the take from China. You know, in theory, uh, Joe Biden came from modest circumstances. He's always talking about them. Lunch bucket Joe. Uh, and he spent 50 years in Washington on a government salary. So in theory, he shouldn't be loaded. And yet he is loaded. He's, he's rich beyond the dreams of most people on the planet. He's rich beyond the dreams of most rich, so-called rich Americans. He has a property portfolio. Just his homes can't be explained uh, by his government salary or his uh, or dear, dear beloved Dr. Jill, who's who's a teacher. She's been working as a teacher. I know from uh, school district budgets in New Hampshire that there are an awful lot of overpaid teachers in the United States, but they're not that overpaid. Um, so he's a crook. His brother's a crook. His son's a crook. And they're on the take. And it's obviously important to them. You know, you would think at a certain point, if you get to be vice president and then president, you would think, yeah, I don't, as, as uh, Barack Obama said, as my dear chum Barack said, at a certain point you made enough money. Yeah, I think I've made enough money. I don't really need to take any more. I think what I'll try and do with the years that remain to me is something that makes a difference to the country that has enabled me to live such a great life. Joe Biden doesn't think like that. It's still all 10% for the big guy. It's 10% for the big guy all the way down. And for the big guys, not the guys who aren't that big, but who also in the pocket of China, like the Labour-backed bencher, Barry uh, Gardner, who got half a million quid from a Chinese intelligence asset and is quite happy to take it. But there are other types, and we all know this, of Western politicians who for some reason find politics and the idea of uh, elections and the idea of going to parliament and, the, and getting into the cabinet and being invited on TV, they find that uh, for some reason glamorous. 
And once they're there, they're people of no particular... I mean, for example, is Erin O'Toole, uh, the leader of the Conservative Party, is, is he part of the conspiracy or is he just a complete ass? Well, I would say he's a complete ass. Uh, I don't think... <laughs> it might well be that he's on the take from China. Certainly people in his team are on the take from China. But there are also far too many people who, in the best of circumstances, don't believe anything. Uh, are prepared to be buffeted one way or another by the expert class and go along. And in, in the case of Boris Johnson, for example, he's lazy. I've said this before, but it's worth bearing in mind. He did no work at The Spectator. He was a great impresario of the magazine. He was the, oh, we're never going to get so-and-so to write about such-and-such. Such. He, and he would say, oh, no problem. I'll call them up and get them to do But all the business of actually running the magazine was done by another fellow entirely called Stuart Reed, you know, who was, who was brought in because everybody knew that when you, 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 you couldn't even say that Boris Johnson was the constitutional monarch and Stuart Reid was the prime minister because it goes way beyond that. The Queen is, uh, uh, you know, a very diligent person and reads uh, her red boxes, which is all the stuff from her ministers. She always makes sure that before she goes to bed at night, she's read her red boxes and she is on top of everything around the planet. Boris Johnson isn't like that. And the minute they started talking about mRNA and all the rest of it, I've no doubt that his eyes just glazed over and he just told the experts to come up with something and tell him what to do about it. Um, there are conspiracies. The origins of... It, it, it is a fact now that deep state gain-of-function research channeled by Fauci through Peter Daszak at this CIA front organization through to the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, caused the last two years. American taxpayers paid for the Wuhan Institute of Virology to come up with the coronavirus. I said, you know, Letting illegal aliens board the plane with their arrest warrants uh, is, 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 too, is too obvious a symbolism of American decay and decadence. But in fact, being so... The, the American public health, uh, British public health, Chinese public health all merged on China's terms. That's not a conspiracy theory. The evidence is out there for it. Fauci was embarrassed, as embarrassed at hearing this as Patrick Valance was, uh, the the twice knighted guy in the UK. Who's th this? This is this is the problem. So on top of that, you have the current frenzy in the UK at the moment. Oh, oh, I'm so excited. The prime minister might be gone and then there'll be a new prime minister. It's uh, uh, Tweedledee or Tweedledum. Uh, I'm so excited to follow which Tweedle it is who becomes prime minister. And meanwhile, that's like your, that's like your thin layer of pitiful, fako icing on the top of this rotten, stinking, mold-ridden, crap-filled cake of corruption. Um, so the conspiracy theories, uh, which are terrible in their implications, are revealed 
to be true. Uh, and then what are we going to do? Are we going to do anything about it? You know, last spring, we were uh, two springs ago, briefly, we were talking about punishing China for what it did. Now we could punish China and punish the people who are on the take from China. But no, instead, you know, as I say in the UK, it's all about whether Tweedledum or Tweedledee will take over from Tweedleboris. And in the uh, and, and in the U.S., it's just the pom-pom girls of conservative ink doing, ooh, AOC was seen in Florida without a mask. What a hypocrite. What a hypo If you want to talk about COVID all the time, why don't you talk about what's at the heart of it? Not the hip. We all know the hypocrisy now. It's not even hypocrisy. She's doing it to you because she can. She's not wearing a mask because she knows she's inside the club and you're not. So you just got to suck it up. And why not talk about something important? for once in a while. Something important uh, for once in a while. Mark Stein, Clubland Q&A, live around the planet. We will have more of your questions coming up. Uh, but first, a, uh, how shall I put this, a sense of perspective. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. Tootsie Roll Goodbye, an ailing pontiff in Rome, and a fighting chaplain lays down his musket. It's January 1922. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update, what a month it's turning out to be in Ireland in just the last few days. Mr. Winston Churchill, speaking on behalf of the government, has declared that, quote, the king has been pleased at the moment when the provisional Irish government is due to take effect to grant general amnesty with respect to all offences committed in Ireland from political motives prior to the operation of the truce 11th July last. The release of the prisoners to which amnesty applies may begin forthwith. It is the king's confident hope that this act of oblivion will aid in powerfully establishing relations of friendship and goodwill between the peoples of Great Britain and Ireland. The amnesty applies to over 1,000 persons presently incarcerated. Shortly thereafter, the otherwise stillborn Parliament of Southern Ireland met in Dublin to ratify formally the Anglo-Irish Agreement and to appoint Michael Collins as chairman of the provisional government of what will be known as the Irish Free State. Mr Collins and his cabinet were then invited to Dublin Castle, seat of English power for three quarters of a millennium through the Lordship of Ireland, the Kingdom of Ireland and the United Kingdom. The Lord Lieutenant, Viking Count Fitzalan invited the one-time revolutionaries to make themselves at home and start governing. The unexpected order of business was the seizure of the Rotunda Concert Hall by a group of unemployed Dubliners protesting, quote, the apathy of the authorities. They flew from one of the windows neither the Union flag nor the Irish tricolor, but rather the red flag of Bolshevism, which in turn attracted an angry mob to the scene. The occupation has now ended and the protesters were happy to leave the building under the protection of the Royal Irish Constabulary. Round on the edge and high in the middle, help me if you know. Don't you think that the cute little riddle's round on the edge and high in the middle, you can find it on the map if you look high and low. 
Round on the ends and high in the middle. German war reparations were high right from the start, but for the foreseeable future, around. That's to say, a big fat zero. At their conference at Cannes, the Allies agreed because of the increasing worthlessness of the Deutschmark and the broader financial crisis in Germany to permit Berlin temporarily to suspend all reparations payments. The conference broke up abruptly following the unexpected resignation of French Prime Minister Aristide Briand. He has been replaced by the former Premier uh, Raymond Poincaré. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The Allied Commission has agreed, in effect, to end the prosecution of German nationals accused of committing wartime atrocities. The Leipzig war crimes trials will no longer proceed because the Allies have concluded that the lenient sentences handed out by the judges of the Weimar Republic have made the prosecutions a joke. Otto Ballerstedt is said to be one of the two most charismatic speakers in German politics. He favours devolving Germany into a decentralised association of German-speaking kingdoms and duchies similar to its pre-unification state. The Weimar Republic's other charismatic speaker, Adolf Hitler, is bitterly opposed to this. Last autumn, he led a group of men from his National Socialist German Workers' Party to the Munich Löwenbrauchgeller determined to prevent Herr Ballerstedt from giving his scheduled lecture. Herr Hitler forced his way to the stage and brutally assaulted his political rival. He has now been sentenced to three months in prison. The first elections have been held for the Vilnius Sejm, the Parliament of the Republic of Central Lithuania. They may also be the last elections for that Parliament, since they were held for the principal purpose of voting for the Polish government to annex what is no more than a puppet state of Warsaw. The candidates elected were almost all of Polish ancestry as the vote was boycotted by most of the ethnic Lithuanians in the Vilnius region. In Lithuania proper, the National Assembly has voted to abolish capital punishment as well as titles of nobility. Little nobility among the present government, Kazis Grinius has resigned as Prime Minister, along with the rest of his ministry, in the wake of the so-called saccharin scandal in which contraband foodstuffs were being smuggled to Bolshevik Russia in Lithuania's diplomatic bags. Is it a quarter to midnight or beyond in the Vatican? Earlier this month, Pope Benedict XV celebrated Mass with the nuns of St. Martha's House and then waited in the rain for his driver. He caught a cold. The cold turned to influenza and then pneumonia. And the newspapers in London and Paris are now reporting that His Holiness is dead. The Vatican is denying the reports, but the end seems to be very nigh for this papacy. Paul Hyman's president of the League of Nations, has called for the evacuation of 120,000 Armenian Christians from Turkey. In an address to the League Council, Mr. Hyman's read a telegram from the Armenian Catholic Patriarchate asking for League assistance in protecting Christians in Cilicia from further violence from the Turks.
In the United States, the former Navy Secretary Truman H. Newbery looks like he will be staying in the Senate. In the 1918 election in Michigan, Mr. Newbery, the Republican, narrowly defeated the Democrat, Henry Ford, the automobile manufacturer and pacifist, famously antipathetic to Jews. The victory was at considerable expense and Mr. Ford's objections resulted in a criminal investigation and Senator Newbery's conviction under the Federal Corrupt Practices Act. The senator appealed the decision and the Supreme Court ruled that the Corrupt Practices Act was unconstitutional. Now the Senate has voted by 46 to 41 to allow Mr. Newbery to retain his seat. Nine Republicans joined all 32 Democrats in opposing his presence in the chamber and the Senate as a whole expressed its disapproval for the amount of money he spent. The senator claims to have spent $170,000, of which over $140,000 was on advertising and publicity, but the various investigations have put the actual sum at something closer to a staggering $1 million just for a Senate seat. America's Postmaster General, Will Hayes, has announced his resignation in order to become the first chairman of a newly formed industry group, the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. In Grandma Day, the only way they had of making love, they didn't spoon while Mr. Moon was watching from above. But nowadays, the latest craze you'll find is all the go. Each loving heart, though kept apart, can love by radio. Love her by radio. You will find it radio. If you want to reach your heart's desire, you won't have to send her word by wire. You snap by your love her by radio. Even when you're all alone, think of all the fun that they can have both night and day. Listening in to what the lovey-doveys have to say, I'll bet the things they'd hear would make a bachelor's hair turn gray when you love her by the radio phone. It's getting easier to love her by radio, at least in Wisconsin and Minnesota, both of which states can now boast their first radio stations. In Madison, the Department of Physics at the University of Wisconsin has been assigned the call letters WHA for general entertainment broadcasts on 360 meters, farm and weather reports on 485 meters, and intercollegial communications on 410 meters. Likewise, in Minneapolis, the University of Minnesota has gone on the air under the call sign WLB. These are the first two educational institutions in America to be granted radio licenses. The flight from London's Croydon Airport to Paris went very smoothly. The Handley Page transport biplane was coming into land at Le Bourget when it crashed. All five passengers and crew are dead. The American confectioner Harry Burt has applied for a patent for the process of manufacturing a melted chocolate coating to be applied to ice cream. His intention is to sell his so-called good humour bar from ice cream trucks. However, a patent for a similar chocolate-coated brick of ice cream has just been granted to Christian Kent Nelson of Iowa, whose product is to be known 
as Eskimo Pie, surely a name for the ages. When somebody says goodbye to me, oh, I'm sad as I can be. Not so with his loving Romeo. He seems to take a lot of pleasure saying goodbye to his friends. Good, 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 good. not love a Tootsie Roll, the first penny candy. To be individually wrapped was created by Leo Hirschfield in 1907 and named for his daughter Clara, whom everybody called Tootsie. The last couple of years were rough for Mr. Hirschfield, forced out of a company whose fortunes he had transformed. At the Monterey Hotel in Manhattan, he was found dead in his room of a single gunshot alongside a terse note saying, sorry, but could not help it. The inventor of the Tootsie Roll was 53. Ben Scheib was similarly innovative. The owner of the American League's Philadelphia Athletics is credited with the invention of the automated stitching machinery that makes standardized baseballs. He is dead at 83. And another inventor of a sort, George B. Selden, was a patent lawyer who chanced to see the mammoth internal combustion engine invented by George Brayton at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia in 1876, and then figured out how to shrink it. He filed the first ever U.S. patent for what we now know as an automobile in 1879. The witness who signed that application was a local bank teller called George Eastman, who later became famous for his own innovation, the Kodak camera. Mr. Selden's patent was eventually granted, and for many years he received a royalty of three-quarters of one percent on every automobile sold in America. The four-wheeled gravy train ended a decade ago when Henry Ford won a legal victory over Mr. Selden, declaring that, quote, it is perfectly safe to say that George Selden has never advanced the automobile industry in a single particular, and it would perhaps be further advanced than it is now if he had never been born. Mr. Selden is dead at 75. Just four American soldiers at the Battle of Atlanta in 1864 won the Medal of Honor. 
the highest and most prestigious military decoration in the United States. One of that quartet was Milton Haney, who two years earlier had been appointed chaplain of the 55th Illinois Voluntary Infantry Regiment. On July 22, 1864, the chaplain turned fighting man and picked up a musket. As his Medal of Honor citation puts it, Milton Haney, quote, rendered heroic service in retaking the federal works which had been captured by the enemy, known to his comrades down the decades and ever after as the fighting chaplain. Mr. Haney is dead at the age of 96. And that's the way of the world, January 1922. A hundred years from today Mark Stein with our Clubland Q&A live around the planet. It is hard to listen to tales from the great age of American energy and innovation of the man who came up with the Tootsie Roll and the Kodak camera uh, and uh, not uh, reflect on the contrast with uh, the answer I gave to our first question today when I was basically predicting Mad Max on uh, I-95 and across the fruited plain. William Peacock III asks, how much of the civilizational decline we are witnessing do you think is attributable to the rejection of our Christian heritage? And do you think that recovering that heritage through the preaching of the gospel, is important to restoring a civil civilization. I'm not sure about that word heritage, because heritage sounds like the past, sounds like something walled up in a museum. And the point about a transcendent meaning to society is that it recognizes that the present day is a balance uh, between the past, the present, and the future. We live in the present, but we have our obligations to the past as well as to the future. And I'm getting close to tippy-toeing around Orwell's line about he who controls uh, the past controls the future and all that. Um, but, but because we, we are in the, in the moment, but the moment is part of a series of moments, and if you deny that as these morons tearing down statues and trashing everything from the day before yesterday do, if you become unmoored from the past, you become unmoored from a future. Now, as to uh, and, and the other reason I'm a little wary about the word heritage is because, as you know, if you saw, I think it was uh, the Mark Stein show on GB News uh, eight days ago. I had Douglas Murray uh, and David Starkey on, and both men are too smart not to uh, recognize the value of church and religion. But, but you know, in Douglas's case, he, he writes, he's written quite movingly about, as I, I compared him perhaps a bit unfairly, uh, with uh, Michel Huelbeck's uh, protagonist in his novel Soumission, who, as he watches France turn Islamic, tries to reconnect with his lost Catholic faith and can't quite do it. And 
I don't want to give away the ending of the novel, but uh, you can sort of guess how that works out for him. Uh, so I think I think you're actually I think you're actually right. It's not an it's not enough to uh, say oh well I like the nice old buildings and the liturgy. The liturgy is so beautifully written. Its language is great, and the hymns are terrific. But I the whole Jesus God bit I can't I can't quite get into. And at some point you have to get over that that last step too. And um and that's why I just thought you know. Uh, to basically to hell with it and uh, last Christmas on Christmas Eve I thought instead of our doing our usual uh, Santa Frosty Rudolph kind of Christmas show I just did uh, carols and lessons from scripture and people were enormously appreciative and I was a little bit shocked because it wasn't the most original idea <laughs> but I was a little shocked at how uh, sort of uh, it came as a novelty to, to people um, so we we're probably going to do that again this year, and that's all I can I that's all I can really say about that, William. That I think it's I, I don't like you know we had more serious a century ago, um, you know, we had more serious atheists because they were arguing in a land that had not yet lost its faith. Now we have shallow. And and for the most part, trivial atheists who, you know, do stupid tweets about, ooh, sky god angry and all the rest of it. You know, well, uh, Europe has largely lost its faith. It's it's post-Christian Europe. Afraid, I won't. I heard it, I think, in 2003 from a very powerful French politician and I giggled because I thought he was using it in a sardonic sense. And then I thought, oh, my God, no, he's using it seriously and he thinks it's a good thing. And it's uh, it's now happening in America where the number of observant Christians has fallen to its all-time low. And that is not, that is not going to go well for America. Uh, what I find particularly, you know, the so-called faith-based institutions, they're just all, you know, free condoms like everybody else. They're, they're utterly post-Christian for the most part here because, again, it's about maintaining your 501c whatever status. So you've got to let in all, you know, you've got to let uh, in all the go with all the trans stuff and the LGBT QWERTY stuff and all, all the rest of it. Gary Alexander writes... This is uh, sort of connected, I think. Uh, with the blessed assurance that the subject of hit songs written 100 years ago will never bore the pants off you, I notice a certain fixation on China entering the hit parade of 1922. Do you care to comment on the origins of the fact that Limehouse Blues and China Boy were written in 1922, or that dance crazes with human beings actually touching were so popular shortly after the worst pandemic in American history, that would be the Spanish flu, uh, or that libertarian themes were reflected in songs like Running Wild, Lost Control, or Taint Nobody's Business If I Do. Is there hope for life after COVID or our post-COVID hit parade? Um, no. <laughs> That's the answer to that. Gary lists some of those songs. Limehouse Blues, which he, he lists as the number one song, which is about 
uh, Limehouse, which was the old Chinatown in the East End of London. And it's a fabulous song. Uh, Dougie Ferber. Uh, I didn't know him. Uh, he's Douglas Ferber to me. But I always remember Hubert Gregg, a wonderful BBC man. He wrote, maybe it's because I'm a Londoner. And uh, I'm going to get lit up when the lights go on in London, which was a big hit uh, in the Second World War. Anyway, Hubert always used to, he, if you ever mention anything that had anything to do with Douglas Ferber, he'd always go, ah, oh, dear Dougie. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you very much. You've made my day, actually, Gary. Dear Dougie. Um, but Limehouse Blues is an absolutely terrific song. Here's the point I want to make about all this, though. Why it's not going to happen this time around. Nobody's going to do the Wuhan blues or anything. Uh, because it's a Brian from Minneapolis writes, uh, Dear Mark, I'm going more convinced on what the real Great Reset is. To be put simply, making the West more like China. They're making it more and more apparent than if the West did things the way that they did in China like how their people listen to the CCP and don't question them, issues like race relations and COVID wouldn't be an issue. Do you feel the same way? Well, just to go back to what Gary was saying, the reason why we're not going to have the Wuhan blues is uh, because of something that um, Charles Moore said to uh, uh, said this to me. Charles, I think he's now in the House of Lords, but Charles is a terrific spectator. Uh, col uh, columnist at The Spectator and he was the editor at The Telegraph in London during my days there and he was very upset at me doing a deal with our boss Conrad Black in which my column would appear in The Daily Telegraph in London and The National Post in Canada and The Chicago Sun-Times in uh, Oh, I can't remember where the Chicago Sun-Times is. It's such a shrunken, dismal, <laughs> rubbish newspaper these days. I have no idea where it even comes from. But anyway, he was uh, a bit annoyed at the idea of me doing a column that appeared in the UK, Canada, the United States, Australia, South Africa, wherever, you know. Uh, because he was worried. He said to me, the Financial Times, it's the world's most bloody boring newspaper because it writes for the world. It thinks it writes for the world. So it publishes this bland, insipid stuff that isn't rooted in anything. And he wanted to make sure uh, that my column would still be rooted in who I was and where I was and all the rest of it. Uh, in other words, you have to have a point of view. And we don't have a point of view now in our culture. Our culture is this dreary, insipid multiculture, which is a big nothing and exists only principally to denigrate uh, our own culture by pretending to be interested in other cultures, which for the most part, these multiculturalists aren't. And so you would never get a song like Limehouse Blues, a fantastic song. If you never heard it, go and listen to it. I think uh, Rosie Clooney did it on her album, Rosie Solves the Swinging Riddle, uh, because it was with Nelson Riddle. Uh, go and listen to Rosie doing Limehouse Blues. It's... It's a song about Chinaman. We just had one in the Hundred Years Ago show, another song about Chinaman, but written from, the, written from a Western perspective. Uh, 
And we don't do that anymore. We can't do that anymore. If you try to do that anymore, you'll get banned, you'll get cancelled. So instead we have stuff written from no perspective. People think, like the Financial Times guys do, that they're writing it from the multi-culti global perspective, but they're not. Because to go back to what Brian said, this multicultural vapidity is just an interlude between what will follow. And it's just a, and, and it's proved just a weak and ineffectual cover. Because it turns out that all this vapid multi-culti product, all this, oh, the X-Men, they're mutants, they're misunderstood because they're different. Oh, I see, I see, is that some kind, oh, really, the mutants are different and people don't like them because they're different. I see, is that like a metaphor for, uh, for how society treats trans people? Oh, now you're getting it. Shall we do it even more bigger and colorfully and obviously and stupidly? It's and and that's uh, and that's because we're doing that instead of writing real stories from an American perspective or an English perspective or whatever perspective. Uh, and the Chinese love it. And so uh, and, and in one reason they love it is because it's completely unthreatening to them. And I think what we're seeing now, as you as uh, I've said this before, but it it bears saying again that I keep saying I've said this before. I think I've said I've said this before before. It's that kind of world. But uh, the the words of a uh, French uh, foreign minister who uh, thought that who thought that globalization was a euphemism for Americanization, which he regarded as moronization. And yeah, that's what it looked like in the 90s. But in ter- in, instead, it's for uh, whatever the word is. I think I usually say Sinofication, China. Yeah, it's for, it's for China. It's for China. And, uh, and Brian is quite right that in the last that so many people, you can't enrich China the way we've done. Again, as I said on GB News on whatever it was Thursday, where did they get the half a million pounds? Where did the Chinese intelligence agent get the half a million pounds to give to a Labour Party backbencher? They got it from everyone who shops at Walmart and Dollarama and crap you like. And all the and crap are us and all the other American emporia who make all the stuff in every American's home. One reason why I'm not ill disposed to Vladimir Putin is because aside from vodka, he doesn't make anything that anyone outside of Russia wants. You can't you you turn up everything in your house right now and look at what's on the bottom of it. And you'll see the later label made in China, made in China, made in China. Uh, assembled in the USA from parts made in China. Oh, that's good. I think I'll buy that. But you won't find anything saying made in Russia. We gave them all our money. We made them, you know, we've gone three years ago, 2018. Uh, U.S. federal government debt was 20 trillion. Now it's 30 trillion. We, we're, we're now spending over half a trillion servicing that debt in interest. You know, there's nothing holding America up. 
You've given all this money to China, and then you're surprised. You've given all the jobs to China. You've given all the money to China. Uh, China has the biggest surface fleet. China has hypersonic weapons, but it's still not enough. There's still all this money coming in every day. Every day at the end of day when they ring up the uh, cash register at Walmart and at Dollarama and at Crap R Us. And uh, there's all this money and it's still not. So what do we go? Oh, we'll, uh, we'll take half a million quid and buy a Labour MP. You know, you can't enrich China this much and not end up in a Chinese world in a Chinese world. Gregory Lawton says, I, for one, have trouble keeping up with Mark's prodigious output, Clubland Q&A, poetry, audio novels, GB News, etc. By the way, I love GB News, even if I don't get the nuances of British politics. Why are all, well, most of your guests on GB are so smart? Well, you know, one of the things that occurred to me, actually, I was thinking about why I've been enjoying the GB News show. And one reason is because apart from this Labour MP who took half a million quid from the Chai Coms, I haven't actually talked about the Labour Party at all. I mean, a whole, you know, four, five, six shows go by without anybody even mentioning them. So it's, it's, it's not quite as, you know, I don't make any great claims for myself, but it's not quite as idiotic as just the sort of partisan ping pong of uh, of red versus blue and i'm you know i'm mindful that uh were this or that election to go the other way things like that become important but as we must have learned from the last two years there's a whole lot of stuff going on that's impervious to who you vote for on a tuesday in november and you've got to get thinking about that and that's why the pom-pom girls of conservative inc you know that I find that I find that sort of boring. It's not really what's going on. Xavier in Ohio says, "Any update on Man versus Stein? Did you say something about a trial in June? I can't believe our system is so terrible that this hasn't yet been resolved. Yeah, apparently we're going to trial in June. I think I was talking about this with Snurdly. I'm of course the un- obnoxious, unlikable foreigner up against uh, Michael Mann." All-American boy, and uh, it'll be a 12-man uh, jury, mostly composed of women, with 11 Democrats and a 12th person from the hardcore Marxist Socialist Workers Green Alliance, uh, or whatever it is. So uh, people will not necessarily be that sympathetic to me. Paul Harmon writes, I love the March for Life, but does it do any good if a people march and no one reports on it does it make a difference? I feel about this the way I feel about Kate Smythe's question about having to pick uh, only uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or Lord Frost. America, uh, abortion is a live political issue. And it's coming up to half a century now since Roe versus Wade. So it's maintained simply because it was uh, it was politicized. It's remained politicized. Uh, whereas in in uh, Europe, for the most part, it it's 
it's a utilitarian. It, it was it, be, it was treated in a utilitarian way, and one consequence of that is that it's not a live political issue. But on the other hand, most of the abortion laws are nowhere near as horrible as America's abortion laws. I mean, basically, you can get an abortion in the first twelve weeks in in most parts of uh, in most parts of Europe, and it is rather difficult to get one beyond that. And uh, Americans don't like that because American pro-life Americans don't like that because they say you know life begins at conception, which is true, uh, obviously true. And they say, you know, we, we, well, we're not interested. Uh, we, we want to get rid of abortion entirely. But the consequence of that is that for half a century, America has had increasingly vile abortion regimes culminating in the film that uh, my friends uh, Phelan McAleer and Anne McElhenney made about Kermit Gosnell, that you well know if you follow what we do here at Stein Online. He was a butcher. He's, he's the biggest serial killer in American history, and he didn't make the news because uh, on the front page, he didn't make the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post because the people who run those organizations, abortion is a sacrament. And so you get this absurd uh, abortion absolutism from the pro-abortion people who are signing on to monstrous things, to full-term babies being uh, seven-eighths delivered just so uh, a Gosnell type can reach in and crush their skulls. It's monstrous, absolutely monstrous. And I think just, uh, you know, America is the abortion mill of the Western world because of this. And it is a huge moral stain, a moral stain as big as slavery. And when I compare it with uh, Denmark or Sweden, uh, where they have 12 weeks, and again, I accept life begins at conception. So those babies in the third, seventh, ninth week shouldn't be losing their lives. But nobody in Copenhagen, nobody in Malmo, nobody in Gothenburg wrenches a nine-month-old, uh, basically a baby uh, who is being delivered naturally and then crushes the skull and tosses the baby in the trash to be driven and buried in a landfill. And shame, that is a huge moral, that is a huge moral evil. And obviously, I'm glad that abortion remains a live political issue in the United States. But my God, the millions of corpses and the, and the ocean of blood since Roe versus Wade. Uh, I don't want to uh, leave you on that grim a thought. Uh, especially as uh, there's all kinds of other fun things to do. Rick's Flicks uh, is uh, live at Stein Online right now. If you don't read Rick McGuinness's movie column, uh, you're missing the best movie column on the Internet. And uh, we always do that every Saturday evening. Uh, but uh, elsewhere in the world, it isn't Saturday evening. Australia Day approaches 
for the handful of Australians who still observe it. Uh, I don't know what the other chaps call it. Is it Invasion Day? Is that it? Uh, Anyway, Australia Day is approaching. It may already have approached and come and gone because Australia is so far ahead and not just in the severity of its COVID lockdowns. Australia, uh, Austria... Uh, I wonder if they're just deciding to do these COVID regimes alphabetically. Um, Anyway, it has become my habit in recent years to mark Australia Day with that renowned larrikin Yves Montand. All that uh, uh, French Gallic sophistication. Well, he was born in Italy, Monsieur Montand, but he's uh, Franco-Italian. Uh, And I find that helps with Waltzing Matilda, which is completely incomprehensible to non-Australians, all that jolly swagman and billabong and coolabar tree stuff. So for Anglophones, it's much easier to understand Waltzing Matilda in a foreign language. Any foreign language will do. It was uh, Monsieur Montan's centenary just three months ago, and what with one thing and another, it passed us by here, which I regret because there are several of his records that are among my favourites in all gramophone history. Barry Humphreys. Dame Edna Elmem likes Yves Montand singing this song too, but Mr. Humphreys prefers the version with full orchestra. I prefer Monsieur Montand with just guitar. Valse Matilda. du passé me murmure un conte effacé éveillant mes amours fanés valse du souvenir mélodie des désirs oubliés quand vous dansiez Mathilda Pour moi, valse Matilda, valse Matilda, charmant fantôme de mes jours fleuris, tourbillon. Parfumé en valassant, vous étiez si joli. Quand vous dansiez, Mathilda, pour moi. Mathilda, 
Does it get any more Australian than that? Yves Montand, Valse Matilda. To all our Australian listeners, happy Australia Day. Enjoy all the mealy-mouthed, equivocating municipal observances. Enjoy all the cancelled ones, whether on ideological self-hating or punitive public health grounds. If they turn the dogs and fire hoses on you, we'll make the most of that too. At least it's old-fashioned authoritarian crackdown, not like the cyber monitoring and cancelling. Tomorrow, I'll have my Serenade Radio Song of the Week on air at 5.30pm Greenwich Mean Time, which is Sunday brunchy time in the Americas. You can listen from anywhere on the planet by going to serenade-radio.com. Serenade-radio.com. And if you're one of that brave band who prefer me on camera, I'll be back with a video edition of our Song of the Week a little later on Sunday, right here at Stein Online. Stay safe, stay free. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. Rights Reserved.